This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's Aaron Moriarty here. For this week, we're presenting a rerun of Evil Next Door, an investigation into the double homicide of an elderly California couple in their own home. It's maybe the scariest story I've ever encountered. And as a warning, this episode contains strong language and graphic depictions of violence. The uh, master bedroom. It was the most horrific, depraved murder I've ever seen as the district attorney in this county. When you think about the terror that these two people just asleep in their own bed where we all feel the most secure. And you wake up to this horribly happening to you. Are killers made or are they born that way? Can abuse or an unhealthy environment turn a perfectly normal person into a criminal? Or are some people simply born evil? You tell me after you hear the case of Daniel Marsh. How do you wrap your mind around a 15-year-old killer? I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours, and this is my life of crime. We begin in April 2013 in the college town of Davis, California, where a popular, younger-than-their-years couple lived, 87-year-old Chip Northrup and his wife, Claudia Maupin. On Sunday, April 14th, the couple didn't show up for church, and that was out of character. So Chip's daughter, Mary, reached out. I called, and I called his number, and I called Claudia's number, and they both went to voicemail. But then Chip didn't show up for a performance that afternoon with his folk band, and Chip never missed a show. So his son, Robert, and grandson went to his house looking for him. And rang the doorbell and no one answered. Everything I saw indicated they were out of town. 
Robert didn't really start to worry until later, when no one had still heard from either Chip or Claudia by evening. He says another relative dropped by the house, found an open window with its screen slashed, and a terrible scene inside. She saw bloodstains. She saw enough that she made a call to get other people over there. The next morning, there's 12 missed calls from my sister. She said, there's been a break-in and there are two dead bodies in the house. And then I lost it. My brain couldn't process that. Chip and Claudia had been murdered, and none of their children could wrap their heads around it. This was a beloved couple, and they had been stabbed multiple times. I was like, multiple? What does multiple mean? Yeah. We, you know, is there a certain number that we should know? And the coroner mean? said, all I can tell you is that multiple means more than 12. That's Sarah Rice. She's one of the grandchildren. It was more than a year before she or anyone else in the family learned the actual number. Chip had 61 stab wounds. Claudia had 67. That's 128 stab wounds. How does anybody even have the strength to do that? And why would somebody want to do that? But that wasn't the only horrifying detail. It appeared that the killer was taunting investigators. He or she placed a cell phone inside one body and a drinking glass in the other. And the intruder managed to get in and out of the house without seemingly leaving any physical evidence. Not a fingerprint, not a shoe print, not any DNA. The place isn't ransacked. There's no valuables missing. Clearly, this is not a burglary that was interrupted. Chris Campion, a special agent working for the FBI at that time, was called in, and he was stumped like everyone else. Was there one killer or more? And this seemed like it was personal. How else do you explain this kind of cruelty and anger? Didn't the killer have to be close to the couple? FBI agents had, you know, called us all individually. And, you know, you could tell that they were doing everything in their power to get answers. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing. And that made cops take a closer look at Robert, the son who stopped by the couple's condo on that Sunday, and his sons, Oliver and Tony. We lived in the same town, not very far away. Uh, it would have not have been logistically difficult for one of us to have gone over there and done that. Oliver, did you know that the police were looking at you and your brother? Well, yeah, they asked us to come in for questioning, and uh, I agreed. Oliver, who suffers from schizophrenia, understands why the cops looked at him and his brother Tony, but that didn't make it any easier. And that first day, it was about eight hours of questioning. The next day, it was another six. It was just day after day, long hours of questioning. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I kept thinking, well, my father would, would want us to cooperate in every way. Were you scared? Very nervous. And at first, things weren't looking so good. When police searched their house, they discovered that the carpeting had been steam cleaned on the very day of the murders. Yeah, it was bad timing. I didn't. I didn't anticipate that that would be the same weekend my father got murdered. It looked like I was uh, covering up, uh, removing evidence. 
Then they cut out the carpet. They took out some of the plumbing fixtures, looking for things that might have been put in the drain. And they also took out a little bit of flooring. Also, there was a disturbing image drawn by Tony found in his home. It appeared to be a man with a knife standing over two children in bed. Still, no one in the family believed Tony was a killer. And Sarah and Claudia's daughter, Victoria Heard, were adamant. Did either one of you think that was possible? No, never. Never, not for a second. Because Chip spent so much time with those boys. Those boys adored him. Cops came to the same conclusion two months later, because that's when a call came in. What are you calling to report, sir? Um, The double homicide that happened in April this year. What can you tell me about that? Everything, actually. A 17-year-old Davis High School student, Alvaro Garabe, said that he knew who killed the couple. It was his best friend. Daniel Marsh. Daniel Marsh? Yeah, Daniel Marsh or Dan Marsh. Daniel Marsh. It was a name that the Yolo County District Attorney recognized. Five years earlier, Jeff Reisig had actually given a local award to a youngster by the same name. At the time, he was viewed as a young hero. He had saved his his father's life. Right. He was the hero of the day. Daniel Marsh, who was 10 years old at the time, had been given an American Red Cross Heroes Award. He had used CPR to save his father's life after a heart attack. I remember thinking at that time, this kid's going places. But Marsh was going places no one could have imagined. Dark places. Alvaro Garabe, the young man who had called the police, had watched his friend change. So help me understand that this was your best friend. I know. Uh, I don't know if I can help you understand that. (laughs) He told me that they were both anxious and depressed teens. Marsh would starve and cut himself. He would tell me a lot about suicide. And how old were the two of you? When was that? Oh, man, I think... 14. They would sit at home watching violent videos known as gore porn that captivated Marsh. Did he talk about killing? He, like, brought it up more. He was just like, I wish that person would die. It seemed like just talk until that spring of 2013 when Marsh started bragging about killing two people and then threatening Garibay if he told anyone. Do you think your life was at risk? Oh, yeah. Mine... My families, my friends. Alvaro Garibay was credible. He had details that only the killer would know. And yet, it was just difficult to believe that a 15-year-old would kill two people he had never met, stab them over and over again, and then leave no evidence behind. So cops brought Daniel Marsh in for questioning. Did he seem worried about talking to you at all? No, certainly not at the beginning. Daniel Marsh back then was a thin, long-haired teenager. These are excerpts from his interview with FBI Special Agent Chris Campion. What do you know, Dan? I just know that somebody broke into this old couple's house and stabbed them, killed them. Campion is a big, solid man who dwarfs Marsh who's just sitting a few feet away, and yet Marsh doesn't seem nervous at all. He's sitting comfortably and seems happy to talk. Uh, I 
of that loner kid that, you know, there's always that one outcast. Dad and mom split when you were pretty young. Yeah. And then mom basically left, abandoned you or your family. Yeah, for like three or four months. His mother was having an affair with his kindergarten teacher, another woman. And Marsh says he began cutting himself. I used to, like, harm myself. Trying to see a scar through there, yeah. Yeah. All the pain and depression and anger just, like, I internalized it and I directed it towards myself. For over three hours, Marsh kept talking but denied he had anything to do with the murders of Chip Northrup and Claudia Maupin. And people are saying, Stan, that's Stan. And he did it, and he, here's, here's why. He didn't do it. I could never do that to someone. I've gotten in fights. That was self-defense. I've got to be honest, as I'm listening to the interview, and listening to Marsh talk so convincingly, so sincerely, I'm thinking, there's no way this boy is a killer. And then Campion loses patience. Why the heck would you just sit here and ball face lie to Ariel and me? I am... You guys are threatening me with... <laughs> with what? The truth? Getting arrested for two murders. I am so scared right now. Of course, I'm going to do anything I can to try and say that I didn't do this. Campion told me that that was the moment Marsh began to crack. If you want to help me, then don't ruin my life. If anything, send me to the psychiatric hospital. Nearly four hours into the interview, Marsh admits he had initially just fantasized about killing. When I was 10, I thought about and plotted about killing the woman that my mother left my father what was your plan? It's going to slur through. And then fantasy became reality. He killed a cat, and then Chip and Claudia. I'm going to warn you, this part of the interview is very tough to listen to. When was the first time you started thinking about killing these people down the street? Yeah, I really am fucked either way, aren't I? I didn't. Did you start thinking about it? That night, I just... I couldn't take it anymore. I had to do it. I lost control. Marsh didn't even know Chip Northrup and Claudia Mopin. They just happened to live in the same complex as his father. I got a hole in the screen, climbed in through the back, went to their bedroom, I opened the door, and I just kind of stood over their bed watching them sleep for a few minutes. My body was trembling. I was nervous, but excited and exhilarated. I was actually going to do it. I was there. It's finally happening. Keep in mind, he's 15. And how carefully, methodically, he planned the attack. He wore a ski mask and gloves. He taped the bottom of his shoes so he wouldn't leave prints. But then he couldn't help himself. He took his bloody clothing and that knife home and hid them in his mother's garage. Did you wash blood off of it or did um, 
that had been fairly covered. The captain is a souvenir. I'm not gonna lie, it felt amazing. <laughs> it was pure happiness and adrenaline and dopamine, just all of it rushing over me. Marsh was on such a high that he couldn't keep it to himself, and that's why he bragged about the murders to his best friend and why he made no secret of the fact he would kill again if he got the chance. You um, mentioned that pretty much everybody you meet, you have thoughts about killing them and how you would kill them. Yeah. So how would you kill me? There's a lot of ways. Um, choking you to death with your tie. Okay. Uh, beating your face into the mirror until it broke and using the glass to cut your arteries. Uh, gouging your eyes out and just smashing your face into the wall. Okay. Nothing personal. Nothing personal? And I said I didn't take it personally because I didn't. That's his fantasy life. I mean, Chris, do you believe that Daniel Marsh was a serial killer in training? Absolutely. Abs without a doubt. He actually talked about how he was going to take his next victim. He was lurking in the streets of Davis at night with a baseball bat, intending to beat to death some poor passerby. At this point, you might be wondering if Daniel Marsh is actually telling the truth. It's so horrific, and he's just a kid being questioned by the FBI. So maybe he's making the whole story up. The cops found the bloody clothing and the knife exactly where Marsh said they were. He was then charged with the murders of Chip Northrup and Claudia Maupin. All rise under orders. Was there any question whether he would be charged as an adult and be tried in an adult court? At the time, no, because of the nature of the crime. Uh, he had to be tried in adult court. But what do you do with a person like Daniel Marsh? Did he really understand the gravity of what he did? Is there no hope for him? Is his broken home life somehow to blame? This was not the act of a broken child who had a rough life. This was the act of somebody who, in my mind, is just evil. And there it is. The idea that a person can actually be evil. That's what the Yolo County District Attorney calls the kid that he once gave an award to. Evil. The thrill Marsh got from killing. And in fact, after the killings, he actually did better in school. Isn't that evil? But his father, Bill Marsh, disagrees. He says that something had to have caused his son to kill. The most logical explanation, he says, the antidepressants his son was taking at the time of the murders, the medications for anorexia and depression. Bill, I know that you believe that a lot of your son's problems are connected to the medications he was taking. But he had fantasies about killing before he started on the drugs. He killed animals before he started on these drugs. Yes, yeah, I don't know that that's true. There's a whole series of uh, confessions by people who have been on these drugs that have false memories. Uh, they believe certain things happened that never did. Campion says he expected that defense. That's why I'd spent some time with him. I wanted to make clear 
that he's not somebody who had had a break with reality, um, somebody who heard voices or had, you know, voices in his head telling him to do things. Did you ever hear any voices talking to you? He wasn't anywhere close, in my opinion, to legally insane. Still, a year after the murders, when Marsh went on trial, his defense team stuck to the insanity defense. They told jurors that years of taking antidepressant medications had caused a temporary break with sanity. Zoloff made me do it. That's Deputy District Attorney Amanda Zambor, who prosecuted the case. But when you actually looked at the medical records, he was having these thoughts and fantasies before he was ever on Zoloft. And that's finally what 12 jurors also believed. In September 2014, they found Daniel Marsh guilty of first-degree murder. And more important, they determined that he was sane. The judge gave him the maximum sentence, 52 years to life. A big relief for Chip and Claudia's family. We are very, very pleased with the verdict. For me, we feel justice. We all exhaled. Yeah. I mean, that was great. But it wasn't over yet, was it? It wasn't over, Aaron. No, it wasn't over. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. It wasn't over, and it may not be over, because since Daniel Marsh went on his killing spree, California enacted new laws that say prosecutors can no longer charge juveniles under the age of 16 as adults, even if they commit terrible crimes. Daniel Marsh is fighting to get his case reconsidered. He's older now. He's in his 20s. And in a TEDx talk that he actually gave in prison, he says he's a different man. Hurt people hurt people. I came to realize that there are no such things as evil people in this world. Only damaged people. If I kept allowing myself to be trapped by my emotions and to be disconnected, he blames his behavior on abuse, something that he never mentioned before, not even at his trial. When I was a child, I was sexually abused multiple times by two different people. He wouldn't say who abused him, and the prosecutor who put him behind bars doesn't believe any of it. He was asked routinely about trauma and abuse and denied it every time. You don't believe he was ever abused? I don't. Um, I think it's a ploy to, to get sympathy now. But it made me think again about the question of evil. Is Marsh inherently evil? Or could the alleged abuse and childhood trauma make him that way? And if so, why doesn't every abused child become a killer? I took my questions to Matthew Logan. He's a forensic psychologist who testified for Yolo County in one of Marsh's hearings in 2018. Is Daniel Marsh a psychopath? In my view, yes. Logan never interviewed Marsh himself, but he has examined all his medical records, including the diagnosis that Daniel Marsh 
is a psychopath. Oh, I, I would say he's a very cold, intelligent, calculated, um, very dangerous young man. According to his medical records, Marsh scored 35.8 out of 40 on a widely used psychopathy checklist. It's one of the highest scores Dr. Logan has ever seen. Well, it means that, uh, that this is someone who, who is not going to fully appreciate the, the impact of what he has done, nor does he care about the impact of what he's done. And it's someone who, who we find to be very unlikely to, to rehabilitate. Do you believe that Daniel Marsh could kill again and will kill again? I would say it's more likely than not that he would kill again. But Marsh has said that he no longer feels the anger and pain that drove him to kill as a teenager. So isn't it possible he's a different person? I've interviewed hundreds of psychopaths and they've all seen the light. And one of the things that that is very typical of the psychopath is that ability to con and manipulate. How rare is someone like Daniel Marsh? Fortunately, very rare. Fortunately, very rare. Someone uh, that young, that scores that high, that has that kind of uncanny ability to convince people that that he should be getting out. Uh, we don't see that all that often. And so uh, it is rare. The fact that he really enjoyed killing. He, he told people that it was the best feeling he had ever had. Does that really concern you for, for the future? Very much. He told the investigators that, that the killing felt better than, than drug, sex, and rock and roll kind of attitude. And uh, that statement alone, and, that, and that, that's with time to reflect. That statement alone tells you a lot about the personality. Still, Dr. Logan thinks Marsh should continue to receive treatment and then be assessed again down the road. In the meantime, Marsh remains in prison, still serving a 52 years to life sentence. But here's the thing, Marsh hasn't given up trying to get his case retroactively included in that California law, which would have him tried as a juvenile instead of an adult. We're going to fight that every step of the way. We might lose. And if we do, Daniel Marsh will come back to our county and he will be sentenced as a juvenile where he would be eligible for release at 25. Daniel Marsh turned 25 in May of 2022. His initial bid to be resentenced as a juvenile was denied in September 2021, but is now being reconsidered again. It's a scary thought, since no one can truly say if Marsh will kill again. And I'll tell you this, former FBI agent Chris Campion hopes we never have to find out. Daniel Marsh is in the top three of the people I'm most scared of, because he's got that combination of being a psychopath and this, this deep, dark desire for murder and gore and bloodshed. And it doesn't go away. It just doesn't. I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours, and that's my life of crime. This podcast series is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio. Judy Tigard is 48 Hours executive producer. Steve Dorsey is CBS News Radio executive producer. 
Production and editing for this season of My Life of Crime is by Alan Pang. Daniel Levy is our coordinating producer. This episode was also produced by Judy Ryback and Stephanie Slifer of 48 Hours. Craig Swagler is vice president and general manager of CBS News Radio. And finally, a thank you to all of you, our listeners. We owe it all to you, the millions of 48 Hours fans. Don't forget to join me online. I'm at EF Moriarty on Twitter, and we're at 48 Hours on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Plus.